So, Brigitta, her husband, they're off and they're dispatched on a mission by the Russians to explore the Russian borderlands to Central Asia. So, right, we start in Skåne. We worked our way all the way through Russia. And now we are approaching modern-day Uzbekistan. And what happens then is that the Tsar wants to find out whether there is gold in this area because he needs to finance the war with Sweden. So in this way, actually, the Jungar Khanate, which was a massive Central Asian Khanate in modern-day Central Asia, is connected to the history of Charles XII, something that is seen as a very, very Swedish history. And in the middle of this, we find Birgitta, who's there with her husband, and gets captured by these Central Asians. Her husband is killed, and she is taken to the Central Asian court, where she would actually stay for another 16 years. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Lisa Hellmann, docent in history at Lund University and Pro Futura Scientia Fellow at SCAS. She is also a research leader at the Bonn Center for Dependency and Slavery Studies at the University of Bonn in Germany. Lisa Hellmann is in residence at SCAS during the academic year of 2022-2023. She is working at the intersection between social, cultural, maritime and global history in East and Central Asia, with a special focus on gender. As a Pro Futura Scientia Fellow, Lisa Hellmann explores the process of early modern globalization, using as a case study Swedish prisoners of war in the Central Asian borderlands from 1700 to 1730. Combining North and West European, Russian and Chinese sources, she will trace the roles of coerced men and women in intercultural communication, diplomacy, circulation of knowledge and trade. We will hear more about some of her research in this episode. And this is the first episode on our new theme, Diplomacy and International Relations. Very welcome to SCAS Talks. It's very nice to have you here in the studio. Thank you. It's nice being here. So would you like to say a few words about yourself? Absolutely. I would characterize myself as a global historian, meaning not so much that I know things about the whole world, but rather that I know very little about a lot of different places in the world, but also that I am interested in the world and how the world became a connected place. And in that way, I guess I would find myself very much in the intersection between area studies and history. Interesting. We will talk a lot more about global history. And we actually did in the last episode also with Mikael Adolfsson, who is also a scholar here. So very broadly then, what is your research about? I often say that my research is actually about Europeans having a very bad time abroad. But in a way, another way of saying that would be that I study intercultural connections and how these connections act as a motor for historical change. So not that the world is all sorts of small insular places, but that they are connected and that the connections deeply matter. And I am particularly fascinated in the world before European dominance, 
because I think there's a lot of perspectives to be gained from looking at that. We will talk a lot more about that. This is the first episode in our new theme, Diplomacy in International Relations. So what does diplomacy in international relations mean to you? I would say in some ways it's what's keep me up at night. Because I am very interested in the history of diplomacy. But at the same time, diplomacy is, of course, a 19th century term. It's a European term. It comes with a particular heritage and baggage that is not at all necessarily what I am interested in. So I see both diplomacy and indeed international relations as very analytical rather than empirical terms. So in a way, I might be a little bit radical in trying to say that they apply to all sorts of interpolity exchanges in all forms of political interaction and exchange. And in that sense, we can have diplomacy without having diplomats, and we can have international before the nation. At least I hope we can, otherwise I'd be in a spot of trouble. But then if you're radical, in what way is that? I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek with that, but I would very much connect myself to what's called new diplomatic history, which by now, as all of these things, isn't all that new any longer. But it was very much the confrontation of the classic diplomatic history, which was top-down, it was very state-focused, but it also had an idea about that we could understand these interactions between state by looking at the official actors. And I and other diplomatic historians with me are now feeling that, for on the one hand, No, we need to go beyond the official actors. We cannot understand these interactions without taking into account the women, the wives, the servants. We have to take into account the translators, the go-betweens, the informants. In a way, that has been the easiest thing to incorporate, I would argue. But on the other hand, we also have understanding diplomacy and diplomatic relations also as a non-European phenomena. And I would say that, strangely enough, that has maybe been the trickiest part. Also coming back to the idea that these are modern concepts and European concepts, so there has been a lot of, not to say friction, but an unwillingness to incorporate other types of processes and also see them as diplomacy, where perhaps they looked quite different. So you're trying to get the complex picture? I really just am desperately trying to leave Europe. I don't necessarily think it's... Maybe it is more complex, but that's because the world was. One of my colleagues, Hilad von Thiessen, that is one of those sort of old-school new diplomatic historians, if that sentence makes any sense any longer, he said it very nicely in saying that it's not so much that we have a choice to incorporate non-European actors or, for that matter, women. Because it's not like it gives a nicer picture or it gives a fuller picture. It's that the other picture is just wrong. It's actually faulty. We don't understand what's going on. So in that way, I get a bit nervous when we talk about it as a sort of a varnish or an add-on or something that makes a good thing nicer, where it might actually be us not quite understanding the processes otherwise. That's how it's supposed to be. Quite. But then let's talk about some of your research also to give examples for the listeners. So you're working with microhistories and biographical approaches. Why do you choose to do so? Why are those important for understanding global history? For two reasons, really. One is that in order to connect the actual 
evidence we have to the large overarching processes, you need to find somewhere where they start. Every single global process does start in somebody's ordinary Tuesday morning. And I think that's where we also need to be looking. What's tricky, of course, is then to connect it all the way up to a, say, global imperial expansion. But that's also my job. I think that's where the challenge lies. But the second reason why I really like the micro-historical and global biographical entry point into history is because it allows us to get under the skin of people. It actually lets us understand what are their driving forces. What was it like for them to get up in the morning, get rest, and try to just live life as we all do? So for me, that is very much where we can bridge the distance between what happened then and who we are now, even though so much of their driving forces would actually be incomprehensible to us. But maybe you do understand it when you get into the material. I mean, I certainly wish so. I quite often say that the 18th century is objectively the best century, and that is for that particular reason. It is the perfect combination of a very different world. It is a world we cannot quite understand because the gender norms were different, the religious norms were different, the political norms were different. The geopolitical norms were certainly different. And yet, the 18th century is so recent that we have proper sources. So we can understand these people because we have their voices, their material. We have a lot of material about them. So it's the perfect combination of distance and closeness. It's a good time machine. It's the perfect time machine. Let's have an example then. You recently published a paper on a Swedish woman called Brigitte Scherzenfeldt. Can you tell us more about her? The reason why I really liked following Begitta is because she very much exemplifies how some people get swept up in forces they could not imagine. She was born down in Skåne in 1684. And then at just age 15, she was married. And she was married to a soldier. Nothing strange at the time and for her class. But the thing was, she was married to a soldier in 1699. And in 1700, the year after, the Great Nordic War breaks out. And this war will rage for over 20 years. So it was actual terrible timing. And as many other wives, she would also follow her husband to the front, where he would die. And there she was. And the thing to do at the front is that either you would be able to find money or connections to get you back home, or you, after a period of mourning, would get married again, which she did. And then he also died. This is also a very early modern story. She has an autobiography, which I read. I can follow her in the Swedish material. But what is so nice is that she is really just trying to figure life out, as are we all. But she does it in the midst of this huge conflict between Sweden, Russia, Denmark, the German states, Poland, and of course, the Ottoman Empire. And In the middle of this maelstrom, there she is with her second husband and eventually a third husband. We find her in this maelstrom because with her second husband, she actually gets captured by the Russians and she gets taken to a prisoner war camp. And already there, she's a long way away from southern Sweden. And she and thousands of other Swedes are taken into prisoner war camps and are then sent onwards further into Siberia. And in this camp, 
her second husband also dies. And her third husband, she finds in camp. So she actually marries another prisoner. And when I saw this, I was fascinated. But then I went to the material and I realized this actually happened quite a lot. There were quite a few women in the camp, but they would try to remarry as quickly as possible, as soon as would be conventional, because you did not want to be an unmarried woman in camp. And then this man, who, again, exemplifying some processes, in this case, the multi-ethnic nature of the Swedish army, because he was a, actually a German. So arguing that he did not strictly have a loyalty to the Swedish king, he took service with the Russians. And quite a few Swedes did this. Some of them might have volunteered to do so. Others were pushed to do so. Some felt that this was maybe their only way to survive captivity. So, Birgitta, her husband, they're off and they're dispatched on a mission by the Russians to explore the Russian borderlands to Central Asia. So, right, we start in Skåne. We worked our way all the way through Russia. And now we are approaching modern-day Uzbekistan. And what happens then is that the Tsar wants to find out whether there is gold in this area because he needs to finance the war with Sweden. So in this way, actually, the Jungar Khanate, which was a massive Central Asian Khanate in modern-day Central Asia, is connected to the history of Charles XII, something that is seen as a very, very Swedish history. And in the middle of this, we find Birgitta, who's there with her husband, and gets captured by these Central Asians. Her husband is killed, and she is taken to the Central Asian court, where she would actually stay for another 16 years. So in following her life, I can break up the idea that in the past, people would only stay where they are. But I can also scratch a little bit at an idea that a Central Asian nomad empire has nothing to do with farmer girls in southern Sweden. Because it very much did. Birgitta is one example, but in my research, I would really appreciate being able to bring together her and hundreds of others with completely different life trajectories, similar, maybe not similar, and together write a sort of group biography, give an idea about what life could be like when you were imprisoned in Russia in the early 18th century. It's really fascinating and sounds like a material for Netflix. Oh, it would be a great movie. Not to mention there's quite a bit of violent strife. When Birgitta first gets captured, in one of the sources, uh, supposedly she bit off a piece of flesh from the chest of one of her captors when they tried to molest her. And that is actually, I think, a very interesting gendered angle to this. When you are a woman and when she arrives in Jogari, she's 32, do do also live under the constant threat of sexual assault. And of course, for her, hoping to one day return, and indeed, as this is the story we read after she had returned, of course she had to stress that she had in some way defended her virtue. We have no chance to know whether it was true, but we can see that this is important to her. And when she does arrive in Jungaria, she then marries a prisoner, another Swede, who joins Jungar military expeditions against China. So suddenly we've left Russia, moved into Central Asia, 
and are at war with China. These are the processes and these are the great contemporary events that have not been seen as contemporary that make me love global history. Mm. I was just going to say it's a very global life history. I mean, moving from Skåne all the way to the border of China in those times, especially. Absolutely. And to think that most of it she would do on foot. So it's quite the trek. I've once been told that historians always write the history of themselves. And in this case, I must say it's not entirely wrong. But I've never been captured by the Jungas, but I've certainly been a Swede far away. Birgitta's story, she, that tells us a lot about global history. But what more do you find there? Is there anything that you want to poke more at, so to say? What I think that her story and also the story of a lot of the other prisoners do illuminate is this idea that the world was not connected as an effect of a European push. So it's not a case of European expansion. It is also not a case of maritime connections, because especially working with the early modern period, as I do, a lot of the examples for global history do come from the maritime world. But I think now we are starting to see much more of a balance where the overland empires get more attention. And in that, I can also see that Asian empires, so non-European powers, also having their own expansion are really getting more and more attention. And I do want to contribute to that field. Because in a way, I would say that the most conventional part of my research is my take on globalization, where I look at political connections, I look at trade, and I look at science or knowledge connections. But what's nice is that in each of these fields, I find these prisoners. I find people who do not choose to become diplomats. I find people who do not want to create a small business in the middle of a Central Asian camp. And I find people who certainly do not want to circulate knowledge in order to make a living. But they're prisoners. They have no choice. This is what they do. And Brigitta actually exemplifies each of these. She takes part in trading expeditions. She is part of, through her husband, but also on her own account, the exchange and circulation of knowledge and technology. And she, again, in her own right, is part of the political life of the Jungar court. But her husband, the Swedish husband, is also supposedly, this is again her own words, so we don't know how true it is, considered to be sent out as an envoy from the Jungars back to Sweden. So again, what I want to poke at is the idea that these big processes can be an effect of force. The world can be globalized without the people doing it choosing to, so that we don't mix up choice and actions. Sometimes we conflate agency and choice, and especially when it comes to these sort of arenas, such as diplomatic agency. If you do something that can be considered a diplomatic action, for example, delivering a letter or maybe even negotiating something, that in itself becomes a proof of your agency. And then agency is often confused with freedom. But of course, what I find is people being diplomatic actors, but not free. During the entire time in Jungaria, Birgitta and her husband are house slaves And there's even discussion whether she is allowed to leave Jungaria with her husband because she is a slave of the Khan. 
So I also think this can help us to understand the spectrum of freedom and unfreedom in the past and to consider slavery as a much more integral part of maybe most pre-modern societies and not something that is primarily a Atlantic story. And also slavery as a sort of form of work which is not entirely physical or you're just a slave to as a worker, so to oh, say. Absolutely. One of the best works that I read recently by Sven Litian was about the Jesuits at the Beijing court, which have, of course, been seen as these great go-betweens and they taught the Chinese how to map and so on and so forth. But what Sven argues is that actually they should be considered household slaves of the Chinese emperor. This was their actual position in that society. But of course, that has nothing to do with slaves working in a plantation. But if what we want to talk about is your room for maneuver, then absolutely this is how we should consider it. They're not free agents. You are now having this scholarship and you are studying more examples. So can you tell us a little bit more what what you're studying currently? Well, right now during this year at SCAS, I am trying to find a way to combine these individual stories, of which I have many, with the fact that there are 25,000 Swedish prisoners. And for most of them, I know very little. So I am working through a lot of sources to find a way to tell a story that does give room to the thousands of prisoners who just perished working in the mines while remembering that other prisoners did very well for themselves in the Russian administration. So I'm trying to combine both of these classes and groups, but I'm also trying to find a middle way. I'm working through the sources to try to map out their social life, their marriages, whether they converted, and to connect that to a global history and a slavery studies angle of the different imperial expansions that they actually support in this way and what that says about global history. So my work here at SCAS is trying to put together this as one book, balancing between the deeply personal and the overarching global and between those who perish in hard work and those who have a reasonably pleasant time and for which imprisonment might even have been an opportunity. Sounds exciting. I hope it will be. You mentioned sources now. And we sometimes talk about sources and this kind of thing on this podcast also. So how about you then? Where do you find the material you need and what obstacles do you have on the way? Oh, I have nothing but obstacles. I work both with local sources, so sources even right here in Uppsala. So I have diaries and letters and reports from the Swedish government and the Swedish war administration. And that is, of course, quite easily accessible up to the point where one needs to sort it and read it. But of course, that's the same for all handwritten material. And I also have a lot of European sources. That has also been a matter of traveling around, which again goes into what does it mean to be a global historian and to what degree do you need a very nice fellowship with very good funding in order to do the sort of project that global history privileges. 
There's, of course, a lot of digital material these days. I have worked with digitized uh, Japanese material and Chinese material and Turkish material, which is, of course, fantastic that there's so much. But there's always the question of who digitizes what? What is the selection? What am I missing? Normally, a lot of the digitized collections would be the printed works, at least first, and then later on comes the manuscript and the handwritten material. And that is quite often where I find most of what I find juicy stuff. And then, of course, the big elephant in the room here is, of course, the Russian sources. And this has been a very difficult matter for this project because I started it just before the corona pandemic, meaning that I had a few years where I could not go to Russia. And then the moment when I thought I would, Russia invaded Ukraine. So I think it also shows very nicely how we might want to say that we are just brains on stick and we are scholars up in the cloud just thinking about our own particular scholarly topics, in my case, the 18th century. But the 18th century is always dependent on 2023. And I certainly am. And it's been, I think, a struggle for everybody right now working on Russia. How do we do it? How do we access sources? How should we do it? And is this at all a route that we want to and should take? It has been a struggle for me also in my last project where I work with China. And there are several polities out there that have less than savory regimes. And as a scholar, this is something we constantly have to negotiate. The current project actually leads me into the province of Xinjiang. That's where Begitta, in the way, ended up. And doing any sort of history on Xinjiang before the Chinese were there will also make it potentially difficult as a scholar in China. So there's definitely obstacles there. So how do you solve it? Oh, you tell me. I haven't. I definitely have not solved it. I'm finding different workarounds. We are working with colleagues in Russia. We're trying exchanges, discussing to what degree material can be digitized and sent. But then there's also comes the strictly political and moral decision of to what degree should we funnel money into Russian academia at this particular point. And I have no good answers whatsoever other than great sympathy for my Russian colleagues and a very great hesitation to working with them. And I don't think there are necessarily any easy choices here or necessarily any great solutions. But I will say that this book could have possibly been done a couple of years earlier, but it's also the way research works. You can never plan things. You can say that things will be done by a certain time, But this project-based research is always based on an ideal world that outside of Candide simply does not exist. So I think I'm a little bit ashamed about the fact that this project is so vastly delayed, but I also think that that is the most natural and human thing in the world. You're not alone, I would say. But I'm also thinking you're going to the archives in different countries and see this different kind of material, and maybe also you encounter different narratives around the material and people who have already made a sort of conclusion or yeah, constructed a story around that. How is that? That's actually one of my favorite parts about working with the material. Because if, if we take the example with the Russian prisoners, there's some Russian scholarship that actually is 
all about the mistreatment of Russian prisoners in Sweden and what a problem the Swedes would be when they were imprisoned in Russia. And there's also in that scholarship a great stress on the fact that the Swedes would not convert, not marry, not integrate. They have nothing to do with the local society. Whereas, of course, other Russian scholars would argue the exact opposite. Once you encounter the great Russian state, what can you do but to marry, convert and integrate? And I find both narratives really fascinating because it says so much about we might all read the same source, but we see completely different stories there. My first book on Swedes in China was very popular when I presented it at Chinese research seminars in China because, of course, it was the perfect example of a European power coming to China and having absolutely no power. And also the one that then during the colonial era in China or the semi-colonial era would never have a colonial influence over China. So in a way, Sweden was very safe. If we go into the museum of the Canton trade in Guangzhou, in modern-day Canton, the Swedes are so overrepresented, it's crazy. It looks like this was a trade between Sweden and China because, again, having Sweden as the example means that China has all the power, which worked very well for me. That was one of the cases where I was more or less welcomed into the archive and into research seminars. So very different from saying that I'm interested in a time when Xinjiang was a Turkish-Mongol realm rather than a Chinese. Going back to global history, you have been thinking about this a lot, of course, because it's your work. And as you say, that's what you wake up for in the morning. But if we now go back and think about diplomacy in international relations and global histories, what should we consider and have in mind? I'm also thinking a little bit about young scholars, people who are setting out to study or setting out to do their PhD. Should they rethink the uh, subject of history or <laughs> I think it's each generation should rethink history and then tell the older generation that they're wrong I can't wait for my PhD students to completely dethrone me one of the conversation I do have with my PhD students is one of how to consider diplomacy and international relations does it have to be global I think what they're trying to say is oh Lisa leave me alone <laughs> which is fair But I do think there is something to a comparison. That is, if you get a perfect view about, for example, how the diplomatic system works in one place, without ever considering, does it work the same way elsewhere? Don't you run the risk of becoming somewhat superficial in your analysis? And it can be that it's similar. It can be that it's completely different. In that case, why is it so different where you are? I think that's an important question. And then that is why one where I do think global history has a very important role to play. And the second reason why I do think that not everyone has to be global, but at least they can consider the global history approaches, is that to what degree would a diplomatic system in one country or a system for international relations between 
two countries or in one region, to what degree is that actually an isolated system? To what degree is that at all insular? And to what degree is that actually a hybrid system or the effect of entanglements? Maybe it is actually the exchanges between certain regions with different traditions that produce these systems. And that we will never find out if we only look at the one place or the one contact. And if it would be like that, that is that the entanglements shape the system, then we can even consider to what degree does that then change the politics and the political system within the country? To what degree would European political systems be an effect of exchanges abroad? And there's more and more scholars that are putting forward these types of arguments. And I think there's a lot of exciting things happening there. And I wish that we would go more in that, that direction also in Sweden. Well, in the last episode, we had uh, Mikael Adolfsson here, who is also at SCAS currently, and he was talking about the monetization of Japan. And you were also talking about global history quite a lot. And I guess you have uh, discussions at lunch and also otherwise. What do you two talk about? Oh, we talk about Japan. I think we very much agree that there's a lot of people who would say that, yes, global history is important, but there's is still an unwillingness to truly integrate it. But I think that has to do with the fact that many scholars have been trained to do a different kind of history. So for their questions, it's not that relevant. I know that Mikkel can have a somewhat somber view of academia, that there's not enough focus on places outside of Europe and that there's not enough global history in Sweden. And I certainly agree. But I also think that, in a way, global history is starting to reach the point where it can play the role that gender history once did. That is, it is an accepted and important field in and of itself. It does not have to justify itself. And there will always be studies where, if you don't have a gender perspective on that, that's just strange. That's just wrong. You have to have one. But there would also be studies where, actually, more Maybe you, you can have it, you can lose it. It's not that integral to the study. And that would be the same for global history. I think we just need to find those studies where it's integral and point out that this study is not good enough without global history. Whereas these other 15 studies, that's fine. Drop it. It's not the most interesting angle for them. I understand. So that global history sort of becomes something that's... You just do, you don't think about it. Exactly, it's been mainstreamed. So you're currently a Pro Futura Ciencia Fellow and are in residence here at SCAS in Uppsala. And maybe we can talk about the fellowship first. What does the Pro Futura Fellowship mean for you as a researcher? I think it has been completely decisive. I did have a position in Germany, but this was the opportunity that sort of lured me back to Sweden. Because it's, for me, the perfect combination of foreign and interdisciplinary stimuli. That is, you get to be at SCAS, but you also get to go abroad. Combined with a stability and a long-term thinking that comes with a permanent position. And I think that's really completely decisive for daring to do certain types of projects. 
For example, one that involves Russian sources you never get to. Now you're here in-house, so to say, at SCAS. So what is your experience of this multi- and interdisciplinary research environment that, that we have here? I think it's just glorious. But I really do think it's glorious. I've been thinking a lot about why I like it so much. It actually struck me that it's not just because I have time to think about things, to work properly, to take my time and not be interrupted every five minutes. It's also the fact that everyone else is in the same boat. So there's something about the fact that everyone comes and everyone comes for a reasonably short period of time. So there's no one that has been here for 10 years. So everybody has this feeling of, all right, this is a time outside of time. This is a place outside of place. And it does very much, I think, to the curiosity and the inquisitiveness that I do feel that my colleagues have and that we can meet somewhere sort of parallel to academic hierarchies and fights. Yeah, that's a good point. Everybody has the time to sit down and talk. Yes, and, and it does so much because even if I would be at my ordinary department, of course, most of the people I would talk to don't really don't want to sit down and discuss global history with me. They have things to do. They have a life, which I highly respect them for. But here, everyone is sort of in the position of, I won't say that we sit around and discuss all day, But when we do have seminars, everyone does come and they come with a very open mind. I think SCAS is what research environments should be. This is how we should approach each other. The only thing, of course, I miss is the teaching. But if we would add that, I think SCAS is, should not be the exception. I think this sort of slow and careful is exactly what academia needs to be able to thrive. Thank you very much for talking to me and to our listeners on this podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We have listened to Lisa Hellman, docent in history at Lund University and Pro Futura Ciencia Fellow at SCAS. We have heard about some of her research exploring the process of early modern globalization using as a case study Swedish prisoners of war in the Central Asian borderlands from 1700 to 1730. And this was the first episode on our theme Diplomacy and International Relations. In the next episode within this theme, we will be joined by Hassem Kandil, Cambridge University Professor of Historical and Political Sociology, and hear more about his current book project On War in America. If you're interested in global history, You might also find the previous episode, featuring the research of Mikkel Adolfsson, interesting. This is episode 44. The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went on to feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures and Asia, citizen and state relations. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. 
Scars Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Lisa Hellman once again for joining me in the studio and thanks to you for listening. Bye for now. Thank you.